0: Lingthusiasm,
1: a podcast that's
0: enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Lauren Gorn.
1: and I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And Today, we're getting enthusiastic about the melodies of words. But first, our most recent bonus episode was a recording of our live show with Dr. Kirby Conrad about language and gender that we held as part of LingFest.
0: Thanks to all the patrons who attended, asked excellent questions, and also helped support us by keeping the show ad-free.
1: To get access to this bonus episode and many, many other bonus episodes to listen to, go to patreon.com slash lingthusiasm. Hey. Hey. Hey? Hey? Hey. So here's one word, hey. And it's got a bunch of different sort of vibes depending on what pitch contour we're using with it.
0: We can use those pitch contours with a whole bunch of different words to give them a different spin. So if we have a word like ice cream? Ice cream. Oh, very serious. Uh, ice cream? That's a bit of a question. Ice cream. Ice cream and what?
1: <laughs> ice cream and ice cream. <laughs> Perfect choice. Ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> very excited ice cream
0: we said the word ice cream with a whole bunch of different intonation that's given it different meaning and that's because we're making use of the way that we can change the melody of words that we're saying
1: so when we talk about the different kinds of pitches that words can have that change the meanings they have i think it's probably useful to clarify sort of what we mean by changing the pitches of the words mhm in this particular context. And it's more like sort of playing a word on a different kind of melody, which might be a very simple melody. It might just be one or two notes. And that melody is relative to the highness and lowness, the pitch of the words that came before it. But it's not an absolute melody, because that's just sort of like the range my voice lives in most of the time.
0: And different voices live in different ranges, just like if we visit the woodwind section of a bunch of instruments, we've got small instruments like a piccolo or a big instrument like an oboe or a bassoon, and they can all play exactly the same tune. They just play them at a different pitch.
1: So if we're thinking about something that's making a pitch intonation, say something like question intonation, which is sort of one of the easiest ones to think about because it's got that nice question mark for us to grab onto. Different people saying something with question intonation is sort of like playing the same song, you know, tickle took little star or something on different kinds of instruments. It's all making that same melody of going sort of down a bit and then up at the end.
0: And there's a lot of different meaning that we associate socially with different pitches. So whether someone has a high voice or a low voice. We played around a lot with this in our episode on vocal folds and how we have different associations with different pitches for different genders. And in our interview with Nicole Holliday, she talked about how African American English has different intonation to standard American English and what that says about identity. But today we're gonna look at more of the ways that we can use pitch and melody to change sentences or words in the way that they have meaning.
1: Right. So let's start with the version of different pitch melodies that is sort of the most accessible to English speakers, and that's the one that sort of operates on a whole phrase. Mm-hmm. and changes that meaning in relatively predictable ways no matter what sort of phrase it applies to so we have you know our example from earlier ice cream ice cream ice cream ice cream ice cream
0: and in all of those cases no matter how you say it it still refers to the creamy frozen dessert
1: Right. But when we add something like question intonation, or if we add sort of list intonation or exclamation mark intonation, those change the ways in which it's interpreted in this very predictable way. If we add question intonation to lots of other words, they all sound questiony. So you can have ice cream, cake, pizza, barbecue, umbrella, clarinet.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. That's not a what's for dinner list.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Om nom nom clarinet.
0: They all end up being questions.
1: right, and you can do this with longer phrases and sentences too especially there's sort of subtle differences in different kinds of questions. okay? So I'm gonna say one sentence with two different versions of question intonation, and I want you to tell me what you think the meaning difference is. okay, so number one, can you bring cake or ice cream? And number two, can you bring cake or ice cream? Okay, for the first one, I feel like it's much more
0: open to like. You just want some kind of dessert situation. I might turn up with a trifle, and it's probably okay.
1: Can you bring cake or ice cream? Okay, yeah. That's sort of like a yes-no question. Can you do this?
0: Some kind of dessert.
1: As a general category.
0: Whereas with the other one, I really feel like my options to bring are cake or ice cream, and I have to choose one or the other.
1: Right, exactly. So In that case, I'm asking a question about like these two alternatives and getting you to pick one. And actually, if you were to bring both, maybe that'd be kind of weird because I'm actually going to get someone else to bring the other one.
0: Yeah, probably going to hedge my bets and bring an ice cream cake, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> ice cream cake is always acceptable.
0: And Exactly where you go up in the phrase can really change the effect that the intonation has on the sentence. So Questions rise up towards the end, but that's very different to another type of rising up, which is a phrase specifically known as a high-rising terminal, but which you may know as talk, where that also goes up towards the end, but the point in the sentence at which it goes up is a little bit different, and so you can tell the difference between a question and uptalk.
1: I think this is particularly interesting because when it comes to writing, people often use a question mark to indicate both types of intonation. Mm-hmm. So If you're saying something like, ice cream. But I think most people can actually tell the difference. Can I say them both to you and see which one you think is which? Yeah. So Here's number one. There's some ice cream. and Number two, there's some ice cream. So
0: That first one goes up and stays up. Earlier and stronger, which sounds much more like up talk than a question to me. And we use that to indicate that someone wants to continue saying something,
1: right? And then in the second one, that's more of a question, which actually goes sort of down first and then up towards the end. Mm-hmm. So that's there's some ice cream and there's some ice cream. Yeah, where I'm deliberately going ice cream, just going straight up or going down versus up. There's this difference here, even though. We're not very precise about writing these sorts of intonational contours in English, so people tend to use a question mark for both and it's sort of obvious from context. But it's fascinating to me that we can actually hear the difference.
0: When it comes to analyzing the difference, sometimes linguists will literally draw a little up and down pitch contour over the top of a sentence to show that the question one does have that downward before upward movement.
1: I love these. I feel like they're very old school. <laughs> it's quite old school.
0: You know, they are somewhat subjective, but they do show you the difference between the two patterns.
1: I love this style. I think it's really quite easy to read. You often see it in sort of like typewritten manuscripts, because it's a little bit hard to do digitally, but it's sort of easy to just draw with a pen. And I find it quite easy and intuitive to read. Unfortunately, it's a little bit harder to do things like technical comparison with because you're drawing this very analog curve and then you're looking at another sentence and being like, Okay, is that the exact same shape that this person drew? Or did this little dip, was that just like their hand got jogged, or did they mean something <laughs> by it?
0: Other systems involve using notation, like you might use H for the bit that's high and L for the bit that's low. I've seen other notation systems that use arrows as well to indicate those upward and downward movements in the melody.
1: Yeah, the H and L one I feel like is sort of relatively intuitive, although when you start combining it, it can get quite complicated. I've also seen people use numbering systems where you number pitches from one to four. The problem with this for me is that some people prefer a version where one is low and four is high, and some systems do the exact opposite thing. So When I see pitch numbers, I never quite know what's going on. Mm. Always
0: worth checking what their transcription system is before getting into things is a thing I've learned when it comes to number systems. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. I think that pitch systems are something where they've been one of the hardest things for me to sort of learn at a technical level because when it comes to something like, okay, you know, here's some sounds, we're gonna produce them, we're gonna transcribe them, we're gonna sort of write down a bunch of symbols for them. That's something that I was able to learn in a relatively concrete sort of way. Mm-hmm. But pitch is this thing that's overlaid on top of the individual sounds and applies to the whole syllable or to the whole word or the whole sentence and has taken me quite a while to be able to train my ear to hear rather than just perceiving the sentence as like, this is a question or this is angry or this is curious or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think it takes practice to step away because it is something that is often used for that kind of emotional and stylistic effect. So It can be harder to kind of step back and think about what's actually being done with intonation versus other things that we use strategically to create emotion in the way that we speak.
1: I feel like I'm better at it now than I used to be. I'm still not as good as somebody who does this full-time, but it is something you can improve at with practice for sure.
0: – Absolutely. and I think the more you realise just how much it is dependent on the specific language, it can help you think a little bit about what's happening with intonation. So, A thing like having rising intonation at the end of a question where it goes up is not something that happens in all languages.
1: – Yeah. So. I mean, I was calling this question intonation, but does every language ask questions by doing this sort of low and then high thing? A lot of languages do,
0: but that doesn't mean that it's all languages do it. So, Hawaiian is a language that has falling question intonation, as an example.
1: So, This is the Indigenous language of Hawaii.
0: Yeah. and What's really interesting is that the Hawaiian Creole that has arisen because of the contact between Hawaiian and English has actually continued to use that falling question intonation instead of English rising question intonation.
1: Oh that's really neat. So that's something that's gotten passed on in the creole as well. Yeah. And question intonation is sort of easy to talk about, but there are also other things that pitch is doing. I think one of my favorites is using pitch to indicate things like attitude. Mhm. So a word like great, you could say something like great. Okay. Great. Oh, much better. Great. Oh, no need to be
0: sarcastic.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's great. Great. Great and sort of starting medium and dropping to low. Great. Enthusiasm, which with the pitch starting very high and ending low. Great. Eight. Or sarcasm which starts and ends low. Great. And just stays low. <laughs> I'm picturing sort of a teenager very very sulkily at the corner. Great. Same word, the
0: intonation gives it very different meanings. Absolutely. And a lot of those meanings aren't conveyed by the English writing system in traditional writing systems. And it's part of what I love about how you analyse how people are playing with new internet grammar and using all kinds of different techniques with the writing system to try and capture some of that spoken vibe.
1: This is something that I talked about a lot in Because Internet, but there's also a Tumblr post that I think very succinctly summarises it, in which the first poster says, Part of the new internet grammar, using question marks not to denote questions, but upturns in voice, so that a tentative statement gets a question mark, but a flatly delivered question doesn't. And Then someone comes along, and I think very tongue-in-cheek, says, all lowercase, no punctuation,
0: Why would you do this?
1: The first person again, It just seems right, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> So I think we're sort of evolving more subtle ways of indicating like intonation like this including things like deadpan questions or tentative statements but it's something that's kind of a work in progress in English which is a nifty thing to keep observing.
0: You can also use intonation for emphasis so where you choose to create a rise in the sentence can indicate that something is prominent.
1: Yeah, so if you're looking in the freezer or something and you're making a list of what's in there, you might end up with ice cream and ice cubes even though normally you would say them as ice cream and ice cubes, because they both got ice in it, you want to stress the other part – the cream and the cubes – to differentiate between them a little bit more. But Intonation isn't the only way that languages can emphasize different parts of a sentence. And I feel like I had to learn how to do this a bit differently when I was getting more comfortable speaking French because mm-hmm. in English, we have this strong tendency to use this pitch part and, and also loudness and things like that to emphasize certain words. So if you're in an ice cream place and it's kind of loud, you might be emphasizing like, can I get two scoops of the chocolate ice cream in a cone, please, to sort of make each of those parts more distinct? But I feel like French is a bit more likely to use word order in terms of which part you say first rather than saying particular parts in a more emphatic way. That hasn't been as effective for me when I'm speaking French
0: interesting and it's a good reminder that when you're learning a language you often don't overtly get taught how to use intonation it's something that you pick up from listening experiments and talking to people and listening to people and you know trying to imitate them
1: yeah absolutely and it sometimes it's sort of easy to imitate in the sense that when people are doing sort of mock versions of an accent the intonation contours mm. the characteristic intonation contours are some of the things that come really early but I feel like it's also worth noting that sometimes what's a characteristic intonation contour or just sort of a default one in one language might be something that carries an emotional meaning in another language. Yeah. So I guess you want to be sort of cautious when we're reading someone's intonation as hostile or you know, as overly friendly that this might be a relatively baseline thing for them and it's not that people are secretly hating you.
0: If someone's language doesn't have a rise at the end of a question, it might come across as a hostile question, but it's actually just the way they're used to asking questions.
1: Yeah. so It's something that's worth keeping in mind.
0: So far, we've looked at how we can use pitch to change the meanings of full phrases or sentences, but we can also use changes in pitch to change the meanings of specific words.
1: Right, so this is less of ice cream question mark versus ice cream yay or ice cream sarcastic <laughs> and more like ice cream versus doorknob or something completely different.
0: Or famously in Mandarin, the difference in tone creates a difference between the word mother and horse, but also the words hemp and scold, which are all part of the four-tone system in Mandarin.
1: Right, so they're all based on ma pronounced with different tones. So you have the word for mother, which is ma. So that's high level ma the word for hemp which is ma so that's a rising tone ma the word for horse which is ma
0: so that's falling with a bit of a rise at the end
1: ma and the word for scold which is ma
0: which is just directly falling
1: ma and so there are four tones in mandarin and for the particular syllable ma each of them corresponds to a word but you could have other syllables where there happens to be a gap and in this particular tone combined with this particular syllable, there isn't a word that corresponds to that gap. Whereas you don't have something like in English, oh, we just never say this word with question intonation. You can't <laughs> question this word. No one ever questions peanuts. They just don't get questioned.
0: And Because the tone is so integral to the meaning of the word, tone is often much more likely to be expressed in the writing system if a language does have a writing system.
1: So both the Mandarin-type thing where the tone changes the meaning of the word and the English-type thing where the tone affects the meaning of the whole phrase, they're both drawing on a sort of similar resource at the acoustic level in terms of how the pitch melody changes Mm -hmm. as you're producing the thing. But because they have such different functions in terms of language, they get referred to by different names. So the English one is intonation and the Mandarin one is tone. And these are both sort of words that crop up sometimes used a bit more loosely, but in the technical linguistic sense tone is when the meaning of the word itself changes and intonation is when the broader meaning of the word as it fits into the phrase or into the discourse changes.
0: And as far as we know, every spoken language makes use of intonation. Tone is actually pretty prevalent. There are some estimates that 60 to 70% of the world's languages do have this word meaning changing tone function to some extent. It's just that a lot of these languages are those languages with really small populations that you hear less about, and they're concentrated outside of the Indo-European family.
1: (laughs) – With the notable exception of Mandarin and other Chinese languages, all of which I think have tone, which are not small languages. –
0: There are definitely many large languages like Vietnamese and Hmong. As well as you said, the Chinese languages that have tone that are you know national languages very visible, but also many many of the world 's smaller languages also have tone systems of some type or another
1: but because all languages make use of intonation somehow, if you 're not already familiar with a tone language and you 're trying to learn one, sometimes people draw on the intonation resources by writing like Mandarin tones using question marks and exclamation marks and things like that as a sort of cue to bridge you over to using it for tone purposes. And this can be pretty effective at a learning level.
0: Ah, huh. yeah, I could see how that would be useful. So for that second tone, which is rising, you could map that onto your understanding of question intonation, which is also rising.
1: Exactly. And this can be sometimes a, a notation thing that people can use to take notes with and help remember how to pronounce it. I find for me I've haven't really tried to learn Chinese, but I've been exposed to enough of the same MA uh, example that shows up in linguistics a lot that I can now sort of hear it and reproduce it immediately after someone has produced it. Mm-hmm. But I have a hard time retaining it in my long term memory, which tone a particular word has, just because this is not something that I'm in the habit of paying attention to. But people do learn tone languages in adulthood. It's a thing that's possible. I just haven't put enough effort into it. <laughs> <laughs> Confessions. Look, there are a lot of languages I'd like to learn them all, but you know so many languages so the time.
0: <laughs> Beyond using your English punctuation hack to correlate to different tones, there are a variety of ways of writing, especially the Mandarin tone system, especially if you're using a Roman orthography. and Some of those have been taken up more than others across different systems.
1: I think the most common way that people write tones in Mandarin these days is just using accent marks or diacritics on the vowels. so You can have mm-hmm. like the ma tone being written with a flat line above the vowel, and then you can have like a, an upwards-pointing line and a downwards-pointing line and something that points down and then up to match the shape of the tones.
0: I think it's become a lot easier to use these diacritics above the vowel for the tone with modern computer systems and I'm very grateful that we have those to make that kind of writing system easier. But there have been some other fond proposals over the years as well.
1: I am particularly fond of a proposal, not necessarily for its practical benefit, but for its like interestingness, mm-hmm. called Goyo Romadzu. OK. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And this is a romanization system that's based on OK, what if we just spelled each of the tones differently using Roman letters? Okay. So
0: you spell the vowel part, which is where we kind of hear the tone, differently depending on
1: what the tone is. Yeah. So, for example, like what if you doubled the vowel? You know, instead of A, you wrote AA to indicate one variant of tone. Or what if you put like a silent R that would be in (laughs) your variety of English after some vowels to indicate like another kind of tone? Wow. Or what if you changed – like instead of writing NG, you wrote NQ, and that was like another way of writing the tone, and you would sort of know based on the spelling, actually, this is different tones?
0: Ah, I've definitely seen Q used at the end of words as a like silent – it's not a letter, it's just indicating that it's a particular kind of low or falling tone. In other languages, where it was before the magic of easy computer writing systems and people were typing things up on typewriters – I didn't realize that they've probably got that from this older Chinese system. How interesting.
1: Yeah. so This is a system that was invented by this very, very cool Chinese linguist in history named Zhao Yuanren, ah. who's like my favorite guy.
0: <laughs> I know Zhao from another way of transcribing Chinese tones. I didn't realize he'd come up with all these different ways. Zhao numbers are where you use a set of numbers to indicate tone. And I like this one because it gives you a little bit of information about what's happening with the acoustics. Mm. So you have the numbers one to five, one being the lowest kind of range in the melody that people are using and five being the highest. Because these Mandarin tones have contours and movement, so your falling tone is five-one, because it's going from the highest to the lowest point. And your rising tone is three five because it's rising, but the rise is less than that full fall on the falling tone.
1: That's a really elegant system because it can also work for other languages beyond just Mandarin. You could use it to mm. describe in principle any tone system as long as it's either flat or just doing like one transition. I guess you could put three numbers beside each other if you wanted to do like rising, falling, rising again. And
0: definitely a lot less opaque than the changing the way you spell the vowels in a word. <laughs>
1: which is really probably cute. why it
0: stayed around a bit longer.
1: But also not necessarily the most practical thing because typing numbers every time you type a vowel so you can indicate what tones it has might get kind of tedious.
0: Especially because they are written superscript, which is often
1: quite annoying to type. Especially on computers. Mm-hmm. I just love that both of these systems are by the same guy, Zhao, who- yeah is also the guy that came up with the famous Chinese sentence that sort of illustrates the necessity of writing tone in Chinese. He had some themes, which is the tongue twister sentence that's about the lion eating poet in the stone den.
0: Well this is the one where it is the same like consonants and vowels, and the only thing that changes is the tone, right?
1: Yeah, it's just all versions of she with different tones. And so if you write it without the tones, it's just she, 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 and I'm not going to do it justice by saying it out loud, but we are linking to a recording. So It's a really good demonstration of the necessity for one out of the many competing systems that he invented.
0: And It's worth just saying that the Chinese writing system is such that because each word has its own character, the characters are all sufficiently different. They're not based on the consonants and vowels. So You memorize the character, including its tone information. This is just something we've had to solve for more phonetic writing systems like English.
1: Right, and for trying to transliterate Chinese into Roman characters, which is sort of mm. the project. Like he was involved with a lot of the early romanizations in the 1930s, and trying to figure out how to go about doing that. And the neat thing about this poem is that it reads differently in different Chinese varieties. So in classical Chinese and in sort of the writing system, it's coherent. In Mandarin, it's just four syllables because Mandarin's just got four tones. But in like Cantonese or Hokkien, it's got like 22 syllables or 15 syllables because these varieties have more tones.
0: Another tone language that went through a romanization process but took a different approach to writing system was Vietnamese which has six tones. And Vietnamese has also gone with this diacritic approach where you put little additional bits of information above or below the vowel, but it's taken a very different approach to Mandarin.
1: Yeah, so like I've seen Vietnamese on Signs or on menus and things like that. And it's really distinctive for having that little sort of curved diacritic on the top of some of the vowels. Like it looks like a little backward C or a hook. So for example, in a word like pho, which is a delicious noodle dish, you see the curve at the top. And what I didn't realize until we were doing research for this episode was that this is actually from the interrogative question mark because Vietnamese had a lot of contact with French, which also uses question marks to indicate a rising intonation. And so this indicates a rising intonation because it was originally modeled after a question mark. They just made it really tiny and put it on the vowel. Huh. Isn't that cute?
0: I'm used to diacritics that have like, you know, have a little rising bit because the intonation goes up, but I didn't realize that this was directly inspired by the rising intonation of the question mark.
1: Yeah. That's a good story. So, you've worked on Tibetan languages, right? There
0: mm-hmm. there's tone in those? There is tone in Tibetan languages. Yolmo and Shuba, the languages I work with have a 2 tone system, which only happens with some combinations of sounds. So, for sounds like ma, you can have ma and ma, or sound like t, you can have to, which is rice, and to, which is stone. Mm -hmm. But there are some sounds like if you have a k, there's only ever a high tone, like ka is the word for mouth. And if you have a sound like g, you only ever have a low tone. So, the tone isn't for every combination of sounds. It is depending on the environment of the consonants that it's hanging out with.
1: – So, how do people go about writing that?
0: – The languages I work with have taken the Nepali writing system, which was designed for Indo-Aryan languages, but maps pretty well to their sound system. And They often include a H to indicate low tone because that low tone is kind of breathy, so they have like a silent H
1: there. – Okay. The H is not for high, it's for the breathy low tone.
0: – Yeah. Just to be uh, – Non-English about it, mm-hmm. so that word "stone" would be T O H in English orthography, and using the H character in Devanagari as well.
1: So, not that far off one of Zhao's proposals, in fact. <laughs> not that far off
0: one of Zhao's proposals, except that I think the Q was somewhat arbitrary, and the H does correlate with this kind of "her" huh vibe to the vowel that the low tone brings. But for Tibetan languages that are written with the Tibetan script, what's really interesting is the script doesn't have anything about tone because it was in existence before the language developed tone. It's something that can come about in a language. –
1: So, the script is older than tone in the language itself. –
0: Yeah. and so You tend to know what words have high or low tone because it's that same kind of environment factor if it's something that has – more likely to have a high tone or a low tone. But it's done with these very elaborate consonant clusters, which used to be pronounced and now aren't and have become the tone system.
1: And sometimes you get a silent letter like E that used to be pronounced, and at the time it cued sound changes in the words. So if you have something like mat versus mate, the e in mate would at one point have cued the vowel to be different. And now, even though that letter is silent, it still cues those same sort of sound changes that it used to.
0: Yeah, except that it's just doing it with tone in Tibetan. And so you have this nice little time capsule of how the language has changed sounds that still allows you to read tone into the language as well.
1: One of the ways of writing tones that I think is super interesting that we've talked about in the podcast a little bit before, just switching continents a little bit from Asia to Mexico, mm-hmm. is in Chitino, which was in our interview with Hilaria Cruz, which we'll link to. They've got sort of Either fourteen or eleven tones, depending on what you're counting, and in either case, that's sort of too much to use a diacritic accent mark based system because that's a lot of teeny tiny accent marks. It's also kind of a lot to use a numerical based system because that's more than sort of nine or ten numerals to put at the end of your syllables. So instead, they use a superscript letters to indicate the different tones.
0: Ah, that's a good solution.
1: Yeah, so they have superscripts sort of A, B, C, and so on to indicate the different tones that are relevant for Chitino. And sometimes they're just written in all caps at the end of the word if the, you know, computer doesn't support superscripts, and these can convey the tones that they're using.
0: While we're in the region, Zapotec is another language that has tone and it uses tone for something more grammatical. So so far, we've been talking about how we change between words like mother and horse or stone and rice. They're completely different words that are unrelated to each other. But in Zapotec, you can use three different tones to create differences in the grammar of the language.
1: – Right. So The difference between I will write and you will write – There's a suffix that's added on to mean – I – and then a high tone also gets added near the beginning of the word to go with that suffix, which indicates I'm doing it as opposed to you're doing it.
0: This use of tone for grammatical things like tense or negation is also incredibly common across Central and Southern
1: African languages as well. There's an example from Dinka, which is language spoken in Sudan, where the tone is the thing that makes a difference between the meanings of the following four sentences. One is, I hate Akol, which looks like a person's name. Two is, Akol has been hated. So, removing who is doing the hating and making it a passive. (laughs) Right. Or, you hate Akol, also yet another tone.
0: Changing it from I to you, so changing the subject.
1: And then, Akol is
0: hated. Oh, the present passive as opposed to past passive, I feel really sorry for a coal.
1: Uh, – Yeah, I don't know who a col is. I don't know why they keep showing up in this example sentences and why people hate them so much. But grammatically, it's very interesting.
0: – Indeed. The only thing that's changing is the tone on the verb hate, and that's creating different forms of the verb.
1: – Yeah, it's doing a lot of really interesting grammatical things in terms of changing important parts of the meaning. The use of tone for grammatical purposes, like changing it from I do something to this has been done, or changing something from I did it to you did it, this gets lumped in together with tone in general, the use of tone to distinguish between one word and another word. and I think that's just because languages that use tone for grammatical purposes also use it to distinguish between individual words.
0: – Yeah, there's an incredibly wide range of ways in which, especially – Languages like Dinka can use tone for a whole heap of different grammatical functions and word changing functions.
1: And that sort of brings us to, okay, if the majority of the world's languages have tone and all the world's languages have intonation, what happens when you're trying to do something like say ask a question, which often comes with a characteristic intonation? And also your language has individual tones on the individual words?
0: And the answer is it depends on how the tone system works, and how that comes together with intonation. But let's look at some contrasting examples to simplify it.
1: You mean we're not going to run through every single language in the world and exactly how its tone and intonation <laughs> systems work together?
0: Well, I've only researched one, so I'm going to start <laughs> with that one. All right. Well, tell us about that one. <laughs> this is one of those I kind of messed something up and it turned out to be for the best stories. But we wanted to collect some tone data for Shuba and so I asked some speakers to read out some word lists. and I thought I was trying to be pretty good at preventing them from doing list intonation because that would get in the way of the tones. But for one or two speakers, we really didn't do as good a job. It's very hard when you're recording long lists and it's been long days. And so We had one or two speakers where there was this really strong list intonation.
1: So An in English list intonation would be something like if you're reading apples, bananas, oranges, ice cream, cake, And each of those words is like there's another word in this list.
0: Yes, so you have this little rise at the end, and that's what I was getting in these recordings. But it turned out to be really useful because it showed us that intonation kind of overruled tone in Shuba for speakers and that's kind of not a problem because there are only two tones. Not all words have a contrasting tone pair, and so tone is not doing as much heavy work in meaning, and intonation can kind of take over from it.
1: And sometimes when you have a language with more tones, the tone and intonation sort of interact with each other. And say you're trying to put you know higher intonation at the end of a sentence for a question, that might just make every tone a little bit higher compared to what it would have been if it wasn't a question. So you can still sort of hear that the tones are doing slightly different things.
0: And you see this with musical pitch as well. So how a language is sung the tone system might again with shuba speakers are very happy to just make the words fit into a melody because the melody of the music is more important and you know not that there are many songs about stones and rice but like if you were singing a song you'd probably know if someone was talking about rice or talking about stones and so you don't need the tone to give you that information
1: oh can i talk about my favorite example of this sure so this is a difference between mandarin and cantonese Okay. Both of which have tones, but mm-hmm. Mandarin has four, and Cantonese has sort of six or nine, depending on how you count. And in Mandarin, it's long been customary in music to not really pay attention to the relationship of tone and meaning, and context is just enough to fill it in. Okay, a bit like you all know and Shuba. Yeah. Whereas in Cantonese, there is a long history in Cantonese opera, which is carried into Cantonese pop, of matching the tones to the notes.
0: And again, that makes complete sense if that's the priority your language has,
1: right? And this is sort of largely relative, at least in in pop songs. So, if the next note in the song is lower in pitch, then you want the word to be lower in tone. Or if it's rising in pitch, you want it to be uh, higher in tone. than The next word and just sort of continue along that melody. But this comes into problems if you're trying to translate songs and you've already got a melody and you've already got a sense of what the word meaning you want is. So, if you are, for example, and this has happened, um, a Christian missionary going to China translating the meanings, the lyrics to hymns, hymns that have existing melodies already that you probably don't want to change. You nope, know, that you probably don't want to change, and you have a sort of general vibe to the words already that you're not super keen on changing either. Mm-hmm. You can end up with really funny things because if the tone mismatches, people interpret the words as something different. The example that I have is a hymn that was intending to say, I am the sheep of the Lord, turned into something that sounded like I am a pig's face. Uh, not quite the same vibe. <laughs> <laughs> no. Because apparently Lord and Pig are the same syllables, the same consonant vowel combination, but with different tones on them. And so this is a confusion that comes up maybe kind of a lot. <laughs>
0: A very good lesson for those working with tone languages doing translation.
1: Make sure to do cultural consultation if you want to translate (laughs) song lyrics. Throughout this whole episode,
0: we've been talking about high and low tone and giving examples and mapping that onto ways of talking about sound that we're used to from music and from melody. But it's worth just saying very briefly that this is a cultural metaphor that we have when we're talking about sounds. Oh, yeah, I guess it is. Going back to our interview with Professor Susie Stiles about how we think about physically abstract things like sounds in terms of spatial realities and using highness and lowness as a metaphor. It's not the only metaphor.
1: So, What other metaphors do different cultures use?
0: There's a metaphor in Farsi for pitch where you have thin or
1: thick. Can I guess which one's thin and which one's thick to see if the sort of maps cross-culturally? have a go. Alright, so I'm gonna say that high notes are thin notes Mm -hmm. and low notes are thick notes? Yeah. Excellent.
0: But thin and thick is their default way of talking about it, and there are probably plenty of other metaphors cross-culturally. In fact, when I was learning to listen to tone in Shuba, I would talk to people about high and low. But one day we got ourselves into terrible confusion when I was working with one person because we were both using high and low, but I was using it in terms of musical pitch. Mm-hmm. And he was using it in terms of social status, oh. where what I thought of as high and small and thin, he was thinking of small and thin and therefore socially inferior compared to someone who was big,
1: sitting up on a big chair, rich,
0: yes uh, so low tone was like very solid and kind of social status had had authority, and we were using opposite high, low metaphors. I was using a spatial one he was using a social status one, and uh we ended up coming up with an agreement where we would just talk about whether it was the rice tone or the stone tone,
1: <laughs> perhaps something that doesn't necessarily translate cross culturally as much but definitely a practical solution at the time
0: sidestepping any cultural metaphors that either of us were using. <laughs>
1: – Yeah, that's great.
0: – and I like it because it explains this confusion that we both talked about earlier on about whether one was a high tone or a low tone. It depends on whether you're thinking of one as solitary and small, tiny unit and therefore high, or if you're thinking about it as big and grand.
1: – Sort of the baseline that other things build up from or something like that. – Yeah. – and Going back to our metaphor of playing the same melody on a small instrument like a piccolo or a large instrument like an oboe, maybe we could also talk about small tone versus large tone. We could even see how many possible different tone metaphors we could come up with.
0: Yeah, I think there's still a lot that we can learn across different languages for how they think and talk about tone and intonation.
1: We could try to make a list of how many different possible tone and intonation metaphors we can come up with. For Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can appreciate my list intonation right here. You can get fancy aesthetic IPA charts, not judging your grammar stickers, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter, my blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet.
0: I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, plus our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm, or follow the links from our website. Have you gotten really into linguistics and you wish you had more people to talk with about it? Patrons can also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans. Plus, all patrons help keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include a language and gender Q&A with Dr. Kirby Conrad and the way science fiction depicts various futures for the English language. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone in your life who's curious about language.
1: Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan. Our senior producer is Claire Gon our editorial producer is Sarah Dopirella, and our production assistant is Martha Tsutsui Billins. Our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic!